Hi, this is Justin. Today on Theocast, our friend Ken Jones is joining us for another conversation. And the topic for this episode is revivalism. And we had talked to Ken about having this conversation and recording this episode weeks before the Asbury revivals were a thing. And so we trust the Lord in that. And the conversation today about revivalism, we have it from a historical perspective and help try to delineate the two distinct traditions that exist in American Protestantism, one that is confessional and grounded in the ordinary means of grace, another that is revivalistic and pietistic. If you don't know what all that means and you've never thought about these things before, this episode today is for you. And we, just because we like to do this on occasion, uh, give you a taste of what the Semper Reformanda episodes are like, we're going to leave that on as a portion of today's recording where we talk with Ken about the Puritans. What do we make of the Puritans. And when people ask us, hey, what do you guys think about the Puritans? How would we answer that? You'll get to find out today. And we also do a little bit of more church history and talking about the Marrow controversy. We hope you enjoy all of this content. Stay tuned. We are excited to announce we have a brand new podcast available called the Kingsmen Podcast. It's where we are reclaiming biblical manhood by training and equipping men for the work of the kingdom. You can find it anywhere you download a podcast. You can also watch it on YouTube. We have new episodes that come out every Monday. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ, conversations about the Christian life from a confessional, reformed, and pastoral perspective. What we're trying to do here at Theocast is clarify the gospel and reclaim the purpose of the kingdom of Christ. We are excited to be joined again today by our brother, Ken Jones. So we're going to introduce him first before I even introduce John and myself. Ken is the pastor of Glendale Baptist Church in Miami. Florida, and he is also the co-host of the Saints and Sinners Unplugged podcast. So, Ken, thank you for your time and your generosity and being with us yet again today. And joining Ken around the the least virtual table today to discuss <laughs> yeah. some theology and to discuss Did the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did you almost say the theological octagon? Did you almost? No, do I didn't. It? I didn't. <laughs> Old school. John Moffat is already talking, and he is the pastor of Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee. And I'm Justin Purdue, pastor of Covenant Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina. And brethren, we've met today to podcast, right. and we are excited to have another conversation with you, Ken. Uh, last time, a few weeks ago, we talked about Christ-centered preaching, mm-hmm. and our conversation for today is another very important and relevant topic. I'm going to hand it over to John in just a second to tee it up for us in more detail. But I want to go ahead and tell the listener that we're going to talk about revivalism today. And we plan to have this conversation weeks before Mm -hmm. the Asbury revivals occurred. And uh, we have the testimony of three witnesses here to confirm that that is in fact true. And so don't ever think that the Holy Spirit can only work in the moment. He also works in planning and preparation. Amen. 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 All right. John, let us know, man, a little bit more uh, about, let the listener know, I should say a little bit more about the conversation topic for today. And I don't know, you always like to make announcements. I don't know if you want to make any. People, people live for those things. Yeah. They absolutely love your announcements. I know. Yeah. Well, there's, I don't know. There's a couple of new stuff uh, out. There's a new podcast out I'm doing called Kingsman. Um, so John, what you're saying is that you're becoming a professional podcaster. (laughs) Yeah, no. 
Okay. I, I, the funny thing is I do this for my church and uh, the moment they're no longer beneficial for them, they're all going bye-bye. So yeah. <laughs> just pray that it keeps staying beneficial for them. Right. I do want to say this before we jump into this subject, because a lot of what I have to say and the things I've been saying for the last, I don't know, seven years that we've been doing a podcast, um, I have ripped off and stolen from White Horse Inn, both Michael Horton <laughs> sure. and Ken Jones. So uh, just to just, if, if you don't like what I have to say and you think I'm an antinomian and I'm right. Kind of messed up. You're gonna blame, yeah, blame Mike. <laughs> I was gonna say blame Ken Jones. So you, you shoot at him first. His email yeah. is uh, Ken <laughs> Jones. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in it, for those of you who don't know, uh, Ken's gonna be speaking next week. So this will be in the past, but at Ligonier Conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's your subject, brother? Justification by faith alone. Oh, come by on. grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's the, the common about that? theme is uh, stand firm. Yeah. And Maybe so, we should just do an episode on that. That's just sounds yeah, amazing. Yeah. So <laughs> I get to talk about standing firm on the doctrine of justification. That's awesome. Well, speaking well, of, uh, this is a podcast at, about revivalism. And we announced last week, so Justin and I did a podcast. If you didn't hear it, we were kind of pointing the gun at our own self and some of the problems in the reform world. And we Justin and I recorded that weeks and weeks. It's ago. been a while ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are typically way ahead because Justin and I we only we only record twice a month, and so we we try to get really ahead just for our own schedules. And uh, that was recorded before the whole Osbury thing happened, and we had already uh, twisted the arm and bribed Mr. Jones to do a podcast with us on revivalism, <laughs> and then that happened. So it was just it was ironic. And then we tried to record it a couple of weeks ago, and we had some technical difficulties. So we're we're here. We're not going to waste any more time. Let's jump into it. I want to tee it up this way. Uh, this is not necessarily a podcast that's going to be designed taking down one particular event, which has been mm-hmm. recently here in Kentucky. We wanted to talk about the movement in general. And the the goal of this is to equip you with some discernment, some mm-hmm. historical understanding so we don't repeat history, and then using the Bible for discernment moving forward so mm-hmm. that we aren't quick to judge, but we're also not fooled by the wiles of Satan, which both of those can happen. I've seen it where uh, we are not gracious and kind towards our brothers, and then at the same time, we are easily led astray, and then that causes uh, a lot of pain and suffering. So uh, my own personal experience, and I know uh, Ken has experienced this as well, I grew up where there was a scheduled revival every single year, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and fiery preaching would come in, and it was very much in the line of Charles Finney, which Mm -hmm. we can Mm -hmm. talk about that a little bit. But uh, we're really going to be talking about the first and second great awakening, and specifically more the first one. Now, a lot of people do see the errors and the problems in the second great awakening mm-hmm. uh, and what kind of birthed out of that. But sure. we also want to talk about the first great awakening and where that might also have had some bents that may not mm-hmm. have been as helpful as well. And then we're going to look at scripture, things like Jesus' conversation with a woman at the well, worshiping God in spirit and truth and using discernment. So that's the that's the start. Justin, I'll let you kind of take hey, us into the first. Me, me yeah, go ahead. Something in here, uh, John, uh, yeah. to what you said. Uh, there is a tendency to kind of evaluate uh, the different mm-hmm. things, but I think in the moment, and especially in the moment, There are two things that we always have to be careful of in the moment of one of these events, whether it's Asbury, because as you said, we initially started talking about this uh, during the Asbury thing. Number one, trying to evaluate something that we ourselves are not a part of. That's That's always, it's not a healthy thing. And then secondly, 
the, the, the urge to go and experience it, mm-hmm. regardless of what you've heard. So, mm-hmm. for instance, rather than saying, hey, something happened at this particular campus, it, I guess it looks like a, a move of God. Mm-hmm. So then people start trying to evaluate, and especially we see in this day where we have access to immediate communication and so forth. Uh, so we try to evaluate whether it's good or bad, which you can't do in the moment. And then certainly we have to go there just because something is good <laughs> doesn't mean we have to go there. That's right. So it becomes our own pilgrimage. And That's I always right. think of, um, I think of uh, the, the Mount of Transfiguration uh, when Peter is so in awe of what he's experiencing, he wants to build three tabernacles for Jesus, you know, for Moses <laughs> and for Elijah. And the Lord says, no, no, just this, yeah. my beloved son, just listen to me. That's yeah. right. That's so good. I think, you know, when we in the moment now, what we're going to be doing, obviously, is looking at that which has happened in the past. That's right. Right. But in the moment um, for what's going on at uh, at at Asbury, we pray that these are genuine believers. And if something is positive happening for them to God, be the glory. But we don't need to leave where we are in order to go experience it. And to try to make to, to determine whether or not it's legitimate. Yeah, yeah. And I want to jump on that real quick too, and then I'll I'll hand it over to you, Justin. And that those of us who are trying to, we when we say that, in other words, we're not affirming it or denying it. Mm-hmm. We get criticized for using discernment. And I just want to say, Scripture is very clear that there can be false worshipers, and there can be a false. Uh, uh, evidences of the spirit. This is why Jesus even tells, I'll just jump into this now, the woman at the well, you don't even know what you're worshiping. Right. You, you think you're worshiping God and you're not. And then first John says, Hey, test the spirits to see if they're actually of the Lord. So using discernment is a part of the Christian practice. This is what we're supposed to do. Sorry, go ahead, Justin. No. Yeah. And I want to reiterate because I think this is really important. I think we should be charitable always towards yep. our brothers and sisters in the faith. And we should not presume to know the sovereign hidden will of God no. and immediately make pronouncements like, well, this clearly is this, or it's clearly not that mm-hmm. we don't know those things. And so I think we would all be helped to slow down and not be so quick to comment and to right. be charitable and to assume well of our brothers and sisters use discernment as we've said. And can I, I, echo everything that you said, my man. And uh, I think the listener would profit if we would put these things into our practice and not feel the need to speak on everything and also not feel the need to go and experience it and be a part of it, which leads me into the first comment that I would want to make to anybody that's trying to assess Asbury specifically, or who is trying to assess revivalism in general, revival, the idea of it and the methodology behind it. It's important that we understand in American Protestantism, historically speaking, there are two distinct traditions. One of those traditions is the revivalistic and pietistic tradition. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk more about what that is. The other tradition is the confessional ordinary means of grace tradition. And so one of the things that we would say, because truth in advertising, right? The three of us would all understand ourselves to be a part of the latter, the confessional, ordinary means of grace tradition. What that means in part for us, to your point, Ken, about not having to immediately get in the car and drive to Kentucky to experience a work of God, we ought not feel that need because we understand that in the, the tradition in which we find ourselves, that we gather every Lord's Day. Uh, in the church, 
and the ordinary means of grace are administered, and the Lord is faithful to meet us as we gather in his name, and as we sit under the word of Christ preached, as we come to the Lord's table, as we observe even baptism, as we sing, as we pray, as we hear the scripture read, we believe that the Lord ministers to us through those means, and he revives us every single Lord's day. And corporate worship is our lifeline. It's where we come to receive from the ministry of Christ. And so we ought not feel the need immediately to go do this thing, this very subjective, experiential thing in order to be legitimately Christ's disciples. Yeah, And exactly. that's something we want to set people's consciences free and understand these two distinct traditions. I, I'll go ahead and maybe tee it up with this too, and then maybe Ken, you or John could comment on this. Revivalism and pietism go together, historically speaking. I mean, and in one sense, revivalism is just a uniquely kind of English-American expression in, in our context of pietism, and if we observe this historically. And so what revivalism and pietism represent at the most basic level is a subjectivizing of religion where everything becomes about the subject's response to the, the preaching, or it becomes about the subject's experience of the divine. It becomes about conversion experience, internal fervor, internal discipline, transformation of my life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, rather than the emphasis being on the objective work of Christ in the place of the sinner. And that subjectivizing of religion has not borne good fruit, right. and that's some of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, and at least for that, the first Great Awakening, uh, Edwards, for one, was conscious of what he perceived to be a deadness, mm -hmm. that there was something lacking, whether it's in practice or piety amongst mm -hmm. the, colon uh, the, 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 uh, the colonists. And so he was, he was concerned that um, true religion was, was declining, or at least it, it wasn't I guess you could say didn't see enough fruit or whatever. And so he was, when he started preaching in a particular vein, it wasn't with the intention of starting this whole movement, mm -hmm. but he was reacting to what you guys have called in the past, dead orthodoxy in the moment. Right. And he seemed uh, to feel that the practice and uh, the practice of religion had declined within the colonies. Mm -hmm. And so he was therefore, that's usually the backdrop. Uh, now, I don't know about, uh, you know, the current situation, but that's usually the backdrop. So when you say pietism, uh, that becomes a way of measuring one's spirituality mm -hmm. by subjective internal things, feelings, et cetera, actions or whatever. Right. But, yeah, so that's where, uh, again, uh, dead orthodoxy holding to sound doctrine, mm -hmm. but maybe they didn't feel it was playing itself out in the life of the church and the life of the people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think revivalism has a history and pietism too, but uh, revivalism always has a history of it, of seeing either dead orthodoxy or, or the, a deadness of spirituality or a presence of evil. Cause like in the second great awakening, it feels like they were going after, you know, everything just to tear it all mm -hmm. down. And yeah. what's interesting is that we would agree all three of us will, we, that, uh, even in our present age, there is uh, sin, you know, that, that's yeah. being promoted in churches and that there's not a clear distinction between the law and the gospel. And there's not, there's, I would even call it law light, right? The it's law, law achievable. And uh, we're even questioning on the sufficiency of scripture. We, we would agree with all of that, but coming in and using law only 
or I would even say to use moralism because it's not if you preach the law if you preach the law rightly mm-hmm. you 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 are less you're left desperate not for moral change but for gospel exactly. gospel life well, right you're desperate for Christ for you that's right. Yeah. right that's right so you know my first assessment when I when I look at this is that um, we, and we can unfold this and some people you know, they may have a, str- a problem with this, but I, I will. T- it, it seems like throughout history, every time there is a proper assessment, there is a problem. And we would agree there is mm-hmm. a problem in America. There's always been a problem in America because there's always been a problem in the world. But there's right. a problem. Right. right. And, well, and, and let me just <laughs> go ahead pause for a moment, because what the way you express that when it comes to a lot of America. There is an assumption, a presupposition, that this is a Christian nation. That's right. So what we have a tendency to do is look at the problems in America and then assume it's because of a failure of the church. Oh, yeah. I think if we, we want to analyze and assess the state of the state, that's one thing. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then we need to assess the state of the church. That's right. That's a whole different issue. And so, yeah. therefore, when, when I hear things like, we need to pray for the nation, et cetera, we should pray for the nation. Always. The goal <laughs> is not to revive the nation. That's the right. nation is the nation. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Well, and I, I, I was saying this on a phone call the other day, and we don't need to get completely derailed in our conversation. Mm-hmm. But the, the mission of the kingdom of Christ is not in any way tethered to the stars and stripes. It's just exactly. not. And exactly. We're going to get and banned that, now. But, and we can all, we can all talk about the country in which we live and there are, there are good things. There are bad things. I think we all acknowledge this. We can be thankful for some of the freedoms that we have and all of that. And, and we're not disparaging our country in saying this, but this is objectively true that the mission of the kingdom of Christ is not tethered to any nation. It's not tethered exactly. to any geopolitical entity. And so, yeah, we need to be thoughtful about that. Yeah. And how that, we discuss that's why I just matters. want to make that, that distinction because what, if you want to talk about, exactly again, going back to, and, and I think that was part of the problem, even at the first great awakening, Sure. There was such 100%. a presupposition of a presupposed notion that this is the city on the hill, that right. they were analyzing the condition of the church based on right. what they were seeing in the culture. Right. Well, and even this, the subjectivizing of religion as well, and in the, the methodology of revivalism, it's so concerned with the transformation of individuals and the transformation of society through the individual. We've got to make Christianity incredibly practical in how it manifests itself in the culture. It has always been an emphasis of revivalism. And this is why, I mean, even as we assess history, revivalism and pietism are the reasons why the evangelical church in the States has always hitched its its wagon to social and political concerns. I mean, we can see this historically, and it's not been good for the mission of the church and preserving it, keeping it pure, which is the salvation of God's people through the proclamation of Christ and the administration of the sacraments. And so I think it's important that we understand, I'm going to kind of maybe conclude my own thoughts on the distinctions between, I'll just go and say it, a reformed theology, piety, and practice, Mm -hmm. and a revivalistic theology, piety, and practice. Those things are antithetical to one another. They are Mm -hmm. not the same thing. They're different, right? And so... The methodology even, this is maybe where I want to go with the First Great Awakening sure. and make this comment. Sure. Most people, the reason I, we're talking about the First Great Awakening in more specificity is most serious-minded evangelicals in America, I, 
I maybe should rephrase. Let's just say it this way. The the Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, mm -hmm. uh, anybody who's going to the Ligonier Conference, anybody who's kind of a, a Calvinistic, serious-minded evangelical is going to have serious concerns with the Second Great Awakening. The right. new measures— Right, the the new methods introduced there, Charles Finney, all of the the Pelagian doctrine mm -hmm. that characterized that, you know, the burned over district, everything it's terrible. I mean, we all can agree on that. Yeah. But most Calvinistic evangelicals would champion the first great awakening as this undebatable great work of God, and right. everything about it was excellent. And we would absolutely acknowledge that the Lord clearly did things through. Um, in, or in and through those people in that period of history, uh, we would absolutely affirm that the doctrine in terms of, in particular, the soteriology of mm -hmm. the First Great Awakening, the preaching of Whitfield, uh, for example, was excellent in terms of justification mm -hmm. by grace through faith yeah. in Christ alone. Amen. We affirm all of that. And at the same time, the three of us and confessional Protestants of that era have concerns about the methodology wholesale. Right. Because the methodology, even of the first great awakening, was extra ecclesiastical. It was outside of the local church, and it was outside of the ordinary means of grace. The local church gathered to receive from the ministry of Christ and the means of grace. It becomes about this personal experience. It becomes all about a fiery preacher and my own feelings and my experience of the divine and all of this stuff and my commitment, my fervor, mm -hmm. you know, that that's the emphasis. And then that conversion experience is the starting point. And then it's about moral transformation thereafter. Mm -hmm. And what gets assumed and obscured in all of that is the ordinary faithfulness yeah. of, of the lives of the saints and the community of the church and just the objective reality of the fact that Christ did this for you, that the gospel is is news about something that's been done. There's nothing we contribute. There's nothing we add to it. It simply is news to be believed, received, trusted, rested in. Yeah. That gets obscured in the whole methodology and project of revivalism. If you're new to Theocast, we have a free ebook available for you called Faith versus Faithfulness, a Primer on Rest. And if you've struggled with legalism, a lack of assurance, or simply want to know what it means to live by faith alone, we wrote this little book to provide a simple answer from a Reformed confessional perspective. You can get your free copy at theocast.org slash primer. Um, means of grace are undermined in terms of being totally sufficient for yes. the health and well-being of the saints as well as the vitality of the church, mm. um, you know, the importance of the, the church gathered rather mm. and, and in its ordinary gathering, rather yes. than gathering outside of the church for an event. Mm. And that becomes, uh, that, that really becomes, those become the building blocks for what would become the second great awakening. Mm -hmm. So it, it starts in the first great awakening uh, these meetings, it did actually start in the churches, but then Whitfield, by the time he came over from England, mm. um, you know, he was not, he was no longer part of the Church of England or mm. sort of, so, sort of, and he's preaching open air and he's yeah. going into areas that are not necessarily in the church. Whereas with Edwards, it starts with a series of meetings in churches, but with Whitfield, it becomes a non-church event. That's right. And then he becomes the center of attraction. Sure. Uh, great preaching, you know, but he yeah. becomes, some say, the first American celebrity. Yeah. Because 
doing it outside of the church. Yeah. And then when you counterbalance what's going on in Europe at the time, even with um, um, you know, with with problems in France and and humanism on the rise, and there was sort of a rebellion against the authority of the church. It's sort of the, the individualism that is promoted by this by the first great awakening yes. kind of tracks with them. Yes. The yeah, I was going to say real quick, what's interesting, if you go throughout history, you can see pendulum swings based upon bad theology. I've experienced this in my own life, grew up in a very legalistic home, kind of swung over the other direction. I never became like antinomian, but I, I was uh, affectionate towards it because I was so appalled by legalism. And mm-hmm. then this happens even, so you got bad theology, dead orthodoxy, or right. uh, kind of the church has lost its way in, in a sense. And so it swings over to like every day needs to be Christmas. You know, that's the experience mm-hmm. euphorically. Right. Right. Whereas in our culture, that wouldn't even work. We would fall apart as a, just as a human being. Yeah. Every day can't be Christmas, but having it once a day is great. And having a moment in your Christian life where you, there might be this uh, a celebration or, or the Holy Spirit works in a certain way, that's great. But when you are told that every day must be that way, yeah. mm-hmm. it creates a false and, and relationship. Every teacher must be equal dynamic that's right and charismatic yeah right and and it makes sense when you're talking about how it starts with uh, jonathan edwards in the church and then whitfield is outside the church you know whitfield is responding to the church of england he's like "Ah, i don't like that and it's if you'll notice any time you see a movement and it's disconnected from the church i don't know if it can be sustained because historically it hasn't because god moves through his church so it's 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 fascinating to me like even with Osbury it's going to be fascinating to watch that because it's not necessarily a church movement exactly i hope it's it moves a, yeah. into the church because yeah. that's where the authority of the elders and the word of god and the 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 sacraments and preaching and teaching and and the one another is supposed to take place and the spirit can mm-hmm. be seen mm-hmm. there yeah. uh and and that's where i would agree with you guys that this the the revivalism it was more of entertaining experience than it was yeah. god moving his church to advance the kingdom. Well, and even in the first great awakening, even with Whitfield, Ken, you basically said this, you know, the, the way that this went down. And I think a lot of the concerns of confessional Protestants of the day were that Whitfield's methods of course are outside the local church, but they're also dependent at least in part on drawing crowds and keeping crowds via, via excitement and energy. Right. And so a couple of comments here, I think that, one of the bad fruits of revivalism is even how we think about the measure of ministry. You know, it it became the measure of ministry was no longer faithful proclamation of law and gospel mm. in the context of the local church, no longer just faithful administration of the sacraments, no longer was an ordinary Christian life just faithfulness in the context of the local church. No longer was that sufficient. The measure of ministry became really how how much religious enthusiasm and how much religious experience are you creating that's a successful ministry mm-hmm. or basically a, a level of religious enthusiasm or religious excitement or a personal experience of the divine became the measuring stick of a faithful christian life right. a good christian life you know and i think that I'm I'm thinking about Ian Murray's book, Revival and Revivalism, yeah. right now. Mm-hmm. So Ian is really dear brother in Christ and has written a number of wonderful things, but he is going to be very sympathetic toward the first great awakening mm-hmm. and right. and how he writes about it. And one of the things that even he acknowledges is that of course 
sound doctrine is necessary for revival, right? Sound soteriology is necessary for revival. But what gave the first great awakening its power was the personal religious experience of the revivalists. Mm. Mm. That's wow. problematic, mm. very right? Problematic. Because now yeah. the, the tie that binds is not doctrine. The mm. tie that binds is not right practice. It's a common heightened personal experience of the divine. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Can I can I make a point Please. biblical to that? Uh, it's like if you want a case study in the Bible, it's like let's interview Jonah. So Jonah, talk to us just about how you got this whole city to mm. repent here because yeah. <laughs> his experience, he was angry and he did not mm -hmm. want to be there. And that's what you call the work of God because in, yeah. in, in, in spite of Jonah, the city was saved. Right. Yeah. And it seems like the experience is the opposite of like, look what look what's happened to me. This should happen to you as well. Yeah. Or, ordinary churchly devotion just it it doesn't sell no. in a in a revivalistic context. And everything has to be it's individualistic, like you said, Ken. It's mm -hmm. it's you know, and it's very subjective and it's about experience and it's about intensity and all these things. And and no wonder, you know, two, three centuries removed from these these movements that we're discussing. Mm -hmm. If you were to talk to the average American evangelical, they're not going to be certain as to whether the preaching of law and gospel and the real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper or, you know, their own personal quiet time and, you know, going and serving at the homeless shelter downtown are more important. That's right. You know, they're, they're not going to know which is more primary to being well, a Christian. Yeah, that, that's that, that what's that's 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 what ends up happening right. when these extraordinary things, uh, these extraordinary moments, even if it started in a legitimate way, there is right. uh, this internal subjective feeling, overwhelming uh, feeling of joy, whatever. Yeah. But but when you have these things, when they become the standard, yeah. then or if, if that's what draws the people, then that becomes what people try to replicate. That's right. yeah. And they try to replicate it in for themselves or they that becomes the new norm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so everyone mm -hmm. is being held to that standard. Every preacher is being held to the standard of this professional evangelist, this itinerant yeah. evangelist uh, in terms of a passion or emotion. And mm -hmm. we evaluate the legitimacy of the message and the worship experience based on whether or not you give me the same feelings. Exactly. Mm -hmm. No, that's right. Yeah, if you're you, chasing those those goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. If, if you the, look the at leadership. yeah, that's right. If you look at the Reformation, uh, what's interesting about that is that there was a movement there, and there was an excitement there too, because you you could, it was a, an excitement about the liberation of assurance and the gospel. Right, we were mm -hmm. separating the law from the gospel. Uh, Luther had a, an, a fascinating experience through that. He wasn't trying to create a revival. He was trying to right. pull the gospel out from underneath the law, and it just liberated so many people. And, mm -hmm. I mean, Calvin had a massive church planning movement that came out of that. And so to say that Reformation or to say that orthodoxy, true gospel preaching mm -hmm. creates boredom and creates people who care less about holiness or the advancement of the gospel is to deny the Reformation and its history. And I would say that we don't need revivalism in order for the gospel to be advanced around the world. We need to use God's word as it was designed. In other words, America, and I think 
uh, any country that has been influenced by revivalism needs a reformation, which is what yes. I think we should probably talk about a little bit, just about how a lot of what ends up happening in revivalism is so close scripturally, yeah. it, and it sounds so close, but yet we, if we don't use discernment, we can easily be duped. And I, I just have to read a couple of passages. I, re, I did a sermon on this recently. And there's a reason why Peter and Paul say things like this, because it's true. I'm like, for instance, so we'll just do First John. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit. And what he means by that is somebody who's, who's saying this is a work of the spirit. Okay, this is definitely a work of the spirit. He says, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. In other words, examine them along with scripture and say, all right, let, let's let's see. If this lines up or first uh, Thessalonians 521, when Paul says, but test everything, okay, yeah. and hold fast to what is good. And I, I think there's nothing wrong. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, uh, how can you deny this is a work of God? And it's like, listen, it is a incumbent upon believers with, as what Justin said, with gentleness, meekness, this James describes that as wisdom, right? Meekness, gentleness, and open to reason. We do need to test everything because if it seems extraordinary and maybe outside of the normal sense, there mm -hmm. should be a little bit of a caution. You know, if someone comes running sure. into my church and tells me, you know, I died in the parking lot and now I'm alive and I'm like, great, you know, let's, let's talk about that for a mm -hmm. moment before I'm just going to accept that carte blanche. Yeah. I mean, but even it, great observation, I'm even thinking about first John, you know, testing the spirits and all in the context of that letter, it, what is, what is John started with and what does he say throughout? That's right. He emphasizes that Christ came in the flesh, that he didn't just seem mm -hmm. to be human, right? Yeah. But he came in the flesh and that he is the propitiation for our sins. He also, we are testifying that sins committed in the body really matter, that this yeah. kind of inner enlightenment is not, you know, just the spiritual plane and, and all this kind of stuff is all that matters. No, that's not true. Like we really are sinners. We all have sin and the things that we do are really sin. And it matters how we live, right? Yeah. But we're confessing that Christ came in the flesh, that he's a propitiation for our sins, and that because we're sinners, we need him. And so we got to test the spirits. If anything that's being said is contradictory to that, we got a problem. Yeah. Well, let, the, the flip side of that, the flip side of that in 2 Thessalonians, when Paul writes about uh, lying signs and wonders, mm which he mm -hmm. says God puts them under a strong delusion that they would believe the lie rather than the truth. And here's the reason why, because they don't have a love for the truth. Oh, wow. This is one of right. the problems that we get with these extraordinary experiences and, and yeah. movements. It's, it's what I call with signs and wonders, period. Even in the life of Jesus, what's the mm -hmm. purpose of the signs and wonders performed by Jesus? They are Can, not ends in themselves. No, that's right. They are they are to testify that he is the Christ. Exactly, exactly. Right. So he demonstrates that the spirit of the Lord is upon him. Exactly. He is the promised, prophesied exactly. Messiah. He is the resurrection and, and, and the life. And here's here, let me prove it. I will raise Lazarus from the dead. By the way, Lazarus is dead again. <laughs> exactly. The purpose of raising him is to, is to confirm that Jesus is who he says he is. Yep. So in, the sim, in a similar way, when we see these extraordinary movements, the end result should not be the movement itself. That's right. It should be a greater knowledge of the person and work of Christ. But the more we are drawn to or defined by the experience or the movement, the less important the real things are. That's right. 
And that, I, I mean, I, I, if we could just like capture one part of the entire podcast, that would be it. Because yeah. in the end, if, if it's not Christ and the glory of Christ and the person of Christ that we are in love with more and have a clear sight of and are driven by, then whatever it is that we're experiencing is probably yeah. a complete distraction. Yeah. If, if it doesn't help me see Christ more clearly, yeah. love him more dearly, and demonstrate my love to him more pragmatically, mm-hmm. then it is... It's, of what good is it? And, and and we would never, you know, this is this is uh, uh, warned to us in Scripture. I mean, how many times are we warned about false prophets, false teaching? Ephesians talks about how we can be tossed about or even uh, yeah. shot out by Satan, right? Mm-hmm. Ephesians chapter 6. And, and the concept of it is that we just don't think Satan would use godly means, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> to deceive us. Yeah. But he absolutely will. He can't get us... He can't get us to lose our salvation, you know, but yeah. he can get our eyes off of Christ. And that's what Hebrews says, right? Looking unto right. Jesus, the author, and exactly. set aside the weight and the sin. And Satan's really good at throwing stuff at us that may not even be sin, but it weighs us down. And I would say pietism isn't always necessarily sin and revivalism. And this is not always right. like sinful, but they are weights that our hearts are now weighed by them. Instead of being freed to look to Jesus, we're looking to ourselves. And that's, that's distracting yeah. us away from now, him. I, last comment here, maybe before we pivot to the, yeah. the Semper Reformanda portion. I've just been listening to you guys, and I'm immediately just thinking about various passages in the Bible, maybe picking up on a couple of things you guys have said in the last few minutes. I agree completely. Anything that is a work of God legitimately always centers on the person and work of God, the Son incarnate. Always. It is It is the emphasis the beginning and the end, the warp and the woof of the entire thing is the person and work of Christ and what he has accomplished for sinners. And Ken, you said, you know, what was the point of all the miracles and the healings and the signs and the wonders of Jesus's ministry on earth? It was to testify that he is the promised one, the one the prophets had spoken about, you know, like Luke chapter seven, right? Where John the Baptist is in prison and he Mm. sends messengers to Jesus effectively say, are you the one or should we look to another? Which Another podcast for another day is John the Baptist is a really interesting case study in the Gospels because it's he's Mm -hmm. just like us. He is a as a prophet who is obviously given things from God to be able to speak and Mm -hmm. say and do, and yet he's a man and he doesn't understand everything exactly right. Because there are times where he says, you know, no, I'm not Elijah, you know, and (laughs) Jesus will then say, no, but he is, you know, and (laughs) and and John, it's like he clearly knows on the one hand who Jesus is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and you know, I shouldn't baptize you, you should baptize me, but then he's in prison and it's like, hey, bro, are you are you really the Christ here? You know, that's another conversation. Well, you have to you have to give the answer though what Jesus says, right? I'm going to. Oh, okay. I mean, that's the point. I thought you were moving on. (laughs) Are you the one? Are you the one? And then Jesus says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who's not offended by me. But that language is straight out of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 in terms of what the Messiah, the, the promised servant of the Lord would come and do. So even there, just like what we've just been discussing Anything going on in the church today, any movement in the church today, if Mm -hmm. the end game is not the extolling of Christ for sinners and the like the imploring of sinners to cast themselves wholly upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's it's off. 
and, and the sufficiency and the, because exactly, that's what's under him the sufficiency exactly you are complete in him you don't need yes. anything else you don't need right. another experience you don't right. need an emotional experience because he's sufficient well, yeah. that's right and in this whole business of yeah your emotional experience or even this obsession with power and movements of God, like all these things that we have to be participants in and experience yeah. and all this stuff. And we're chasing after it all the time. Mm. That is completely misguided. If yeah. the emphasis is not Christ for us and that he's enough and he's done it all. Mm. And, amen. uh, amen. 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 So we have more to say. I, we, we didn't even really talk about the Puritans. I know this is something that we have, gotten asked about before. Ken, yeah. I know you and I've talked about this on the phone in the mm-hmm. past. People will say, guys, what do you think about the Puritans? As though that's, you know, just some simple question to answer. Like the Puritan movement is massive in scope. And so yeah. some nuance is required in order to answer that's that question. Right. And we're going to talk about that and some other things in sure. the Semper Reformanda portion of the podcast. This is a separate podcast that John and I do each week for uh, members who have partnered with Theocast financially to support the work of the ministry. And so we're going to have this conversation with Ken over there. And being a part of Semper Reformanda doesn't just get you access to this extra pod every week. It, it gives you access to an app and a community of people who are processing the same things that you are. And it's a kind of safe space like Facebook, but better. You can go in and ask questions, and interact with one another. And uh, there's some other content available uh, coming down the pipe too. Just Theocast use some some additional educational material, all kinds of good things we have in the works. So if you're interested in what it would be like to become a, a member of Semper Reformanda, you can find all the information over at our website. Yeah, there's almost 20 classes uploaded to that, but it's not How live yet. Not live yet. They're coming. So now. it's an already but not yet reality. <laughs> and uh, Ken, thank you again, brother, for your time and just your your friendship, your encouragement in the gospel. Man, uh, man you're, you, you do. You bless John and myself. And uh, it's always great to be able to have conversations with men who are going to encourage and extol uh, all of us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're grateful for you, bro. And we're going to well, thank you, Jim. Thank you. Yeah, I really man. appreciate you guys work. Thank you. Likewise. All right. We're going to continue this conversation. If you're going to make your way over to SR, we'll talk with you there. If not, we'll talk with you again on the regular show next week. Grace and peace to you. Welcome to Semper Reformanda. I know John is relatively excited to be here and Ken is thrilled to be here to talk about the Puritans and some other things. And so we left off, we were talking about a lot of good stuff and how any movement of God legitimately has to be centered on the person and work of Christ. We may say more about that. But initially, I want us to go ahead and answer the question. We like to do what we say around here. Uh, So we toss it out. What do we make of the Puritans? This is a question that I've gotten a lot from congregants, like people who come and attend services at Covenant Baptist Church, we've gotten it at Theocast before. Ken, mm-hmm. I know that you get asked these questions quite a bit, given the platform oh, that yeah. you have. How would you begin to answer that question? What about the Puritans? Go. Yeah. Um, first, I would try to recommend a few things that would give a historical backdrop to what we call Puritanism. Mm-hmm. Because... A lot of times it's just used in a pejorative way, uh, culturally, you're puritanical. And then in the church, we have a tendency to look at it as all things Puritan are all pure and good. Right. When in actuality, it's a whole system of thought, um, a certain branch of evangelical or uh, Protestantism at the time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they are not monolithic. 
Exactly. There are some that wrote in the Puritan period that are not even sound. Yeah. <laughs> and that are not even, you know, orthodox. Or exactly. They're not orthodox. Um, right. Richard Baxter being one of them. Look out. Uh, he has a good book, or there's some good things in the book, the Reformed Pastor, but people assume Puritan to mean or Congregationalists that were Calvinistic and they are all the same, but they're not. No. So they, they're all over the place. They're not, it's not a monolithic mm -hmm. uh, system of theology. Mm -hmm. There are Puritans that I, I think are more consistently healthy than others. Sure. Uh, very, you know, very, very tenuous kind of writing. It's, it's tedious work, but it's, it's good stuff. When you read guys like John Owen, mm -hmm. uh, John Flavel, mm -hmm. um, you know, those guys, Thomas Boston, yeah. you know, these guys are, these are, that's solid stuff, but Puritanism, Thomas Watson, a lot of his stuff, um, you know, so it's, you don't want to put them all in the same bag and it Agreed. depends on the issue and the topics they're discussing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think we talked about this when we did Christ-centered preaching and commentaries. One of the things I, I try and teach people that you have to learn there is not a, you can't rest and just grab something and just read it and say, uh, I mm -hmm. can trust everything that's in here. Uh, you just can't right. do that. I mean, look, we all love Michael Horton, right? We, we would say that right. it doesn't matter who the man is. You should always use discernment just because mm -hmm. they are a man. And right. this is one of the things from my tradition as a as an independent Baptist. It was, you know, you were kind of trained and taught, like, these are the heroes and you trust everything yeah. they have to and say. man of God, dude. Yes, that's yeah. right. You don't, you don't yeah. question the man of God. And, you know, I've had to teach people throughout the years that that's just not how it works, right? The Bible warns us to use discernment and we should do that. So when it comes down to Puritans, we can gain, you know, the Bruce Reed, right? I mean, it's like everybody mm -hmm. should have that book. Yeah. And it's amazing. Yeah. Excellent book. Right. And I would even say Walther's book on law gospel is good, but there's some sections in there that you're like, yeah, use and he's some a Lutheran. That's yeah. right. Use some discernment because well, ah, I don't agree. know. I don't know if we can no, lose I, our salvation funny, here. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that years ago on White Horse End, we were promoting Walther's law gospel. As, and, and basically, we were sending it out from Cure, Christians United for Reformation. And we had it on file, that section. Man, I got feedback from <laughs> a lot of Reformed Baptists. We're well, not a lot, but I had some guys that called me up and say, hey, Ken, look, have you read the rest of that book? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, right. And Yeah, I agree, yeah. dude. There's some really good stuff. But, I mean, there's <laughs> some very pr troubling chapters in that book, too. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, yeah, but I, I want to maybe just reiterate a little bit of what you guys have said. I think the, the Puritans, it's a huge, huge tent. We're talking about an era of history. You're talking effectively the English Reformed tradition in many ways, exactly. as opposed to the Continental Reformed tradition. So the English Reformed tradition, characterized by the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration, and the second, you know, the first and second London Confessions, that's a massive amount. I mean, in terms of just the scope of it, and it spans centuries. It would just be like, it would be just like saying, well, what about evangelicals? You know, because if we're going to, that's an historical period and it's a huge tent. And of course exactly. you would not just, if 300 years from now, if the Lord tarries, you wouldn't just look at somebody and say, yeah, go read, go read any evangelical author and it's going to mm -hmm. be helpful. 
Not true. No. Just same is true of it, go read any Puritan. Not not helpful necessarily. We need to use discernment, as you brothers have said. A few of my favorites have already been mentioned: John Owen, excellent; uh, Thomas Boston, excellent. Any of the Marrow brethren. Yeah. Uh, right. So the John Calhoun, uh, the Erskine brothers, those guys. Any of those dudes are going to be helpful. But you're going to get a lot of inconsistency from others. I mean, even John Bunyan, very famous for yes. Pilgrim's Progress and All Loves Excelling and other things. Not all of his works are equally helpful. No. And right. he's a very mixed bag. At Can least in we my say own there are men who were in transition theologically, right? Sure. <laughs> they sure. were forming. Sure. Yeah. And so I think that's what we would say about the Puritans. A lot of good, some very yeah. unhelpful stuff. And uh, yeah, just use discernment. And, and there, there is, there is a, a Puritan theology. Sure. Mm-hmm. Especially among the Anglicans or the... Um, the the, the 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 congregationalists and the yeah. Presbyterians. Yeah. There is a theology that they hold in common, but there's also a a Puritan methodology. Mm, sure. And I think that method of writing mm. and method of preaching is probably where you can really get into problems, mm. you know, potential problems. Like you have to have uses, you know, twenty five yeah. uses of yeah. this. And here's the doctrine. Here's the uses. Here's exactly. The, yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's very formulaic and unhelpful. Do you guys want to talk about the marrow controversy at all? That would, uh, that's like that's fodder, man. That's easy, <laughs> dude. I, I love it. Uh, I think it's it's very. I'll I'll say this, and I'll see what you guys think. Okay. Um, so, I think to say that our current moment in the American church, to compare it directly to the Reformation, I think is a little bit of an overstatement. To say that we need reformation like was needed in the medieval church. I don't know that that is quite where we are. No. I think the marrow controversy in the church of Scotland is a very apt comparison though. Yes. When we're talking about the kind of Calvinistic evangelical world where if, if folks that are unfamiliar with the marrow controversy, this is the early decades of the 18th century in Scotland. And there is a, a controversy sparked from a ministerial examination in a rural presbytery, the Octorard or Presbytery, there's a question posed to ministerial candidates that is effectively this, must one forsake sin in order to come to Christ? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question, yes or no, effectively split the Church of Scotland. Mm-hmm. And the ministers who answered that question, albeit acknowledging that the wording is a little bit tricky and maybe not the most helpful question, they said the answer to that is clearly no. We don't need to do anything in order to come to Christ, because if we need to do anything in order to come to Christ, we're all damned, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the call. We, we preach Christ to all men and we implore people to trust him. That's right. right. So the, those guys that took that position all had an affinity and an appreciation for a book that was written in the 1640s, 1650s called the marrow of modern divinity. Mm-hmm. And so they became known as the marrow brethren. Thomas Boston is maybe the most famous of them. And he has footnotes in the in the modern publications of the Mayor of Modern Divinity that are worth the price of admission themselves. All this to say, I think that what you had um, in the Church of Scotland were was a disagreement amongst Calvinistic, quote-unquote, reformed types. You know, it's a Presbyterian church, but you mm-hmm. have this kind of hyper-introspective perspective. You have a, like, we need to be looking for fruit. We need to be looking for evidences Mm -hmm. of regeneration. We need to be looking for evidences of election. This kind of hyper-Calvinism stuff that Spurgeon railed against is happening. And then you have guys coming in saying, nah, we need to herald Christ for sinners. And they're called antinomians. That's right. And 
I think that's very similar to where we find ourselves today. I don't know if that's something you guys want to interact with. I realize I spoke for a long time and I apologize. No, that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, I think that's where we get, and you guys have done a good job on this in talking about um, the pushback mm. on historic teaching on the doctrines of grace, particularly justification. Yeah. And, you know, you guys have even named some names who have, have kind of parted from that whether it's intentional or unintentional, Correct. John Piper with his final justification, yeah, sure. that's similar, even though it's on the back end of it, it's, it still comes, comes out in the same way. You're right. We have to trust the gospel. That's right. And to, you know, this is where even with the marrow controversy, does one have to forsake sin in order to come to Christ? Technically, theologically, we would say that genuine repentance and turning to Christ sure. is turning away from sin. Of course. But it's not because you have forsaken personal, you know, that you've purified yourself. Exactly. Uh, so that's where um, it gets a little loosey-goosey because you say, well, if, if you say that and people hear that to mean in the same way with Galatians that you have, to, in addition to faith in Christ, yes. Now you have to forsake or for, forsake all unrighteousness and fulfill all of the requirements of the law. That's not what they're saying. No. Mm -hmm. So in the marital controversy, if you're saying, "Do I? Is there a preliminary work?" We've been talking about revivalism. That mm -hmm. was one of the things that certainly came out of the Second Great Awakening right. or sure. the Second Period of Revival. Is the preparationism? Yeah. Sure. The sinners pew and the whole thing. You know, anxious bench and all that. Yeah. Exactly. Anxious, anxious people walk in the aisle, all of mm. those things to demonstrate one's genuineness in their conversion. Uh, so I do think that certain elements of that uh, Merrill controversy, because the Merrill brothers, they were adamant yeah. and stark that we that God saves sinners. That exactly. is the symbol of the gospel. That's right. That's right. No, amen to that. Yeah, I would say. When, when we think of it, and your point is really well made, because even when John and Jesus are coming to uh, calling for repentance, uh, sometimes people think that's morality. Mm. And what they're what they're calling for, like without faith, it's impossible to please him. And without faith, one right. cannot be saved. And, and faithlessness is sin, right? So like stop trusting in yourself, that's sin, yeah. mm -hmm. and repent of that and trust mm -hmm. in Christ. Yeah. You know, right. uh, the Merrill men would agree with that. Uh, but what if of you're course. saying that you have to, and, and even that's a work of the spirit. So praise, mm -hmm. praise be to God Amen. for my capacity to stop trusting myself and trusting Christ. That's a work of the spirit. Yeah. But this concept, and this even goes into Lordship salvation, that the idea that you have to turn away from all of your sin. And listen, the greatest sin you have against God is not loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's never been a moment you've ever done that, even to this day, yeah. not even for yeah. a fraction of a second. Right. So yeah. if repentance, full repentance is required, you have to lower that standard of the law, which is the greatest commandment. And we just mm -hmm. don't do that. You know, we love to we love to get the easy ones. Well, like you can't murder, sex outside of marriage, all that kind of stuff. And God's yeah. like, we think it's easy until we understand what it's saying. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Matthew chapter five, right? right. Yeah. Like and, the heart of the issue. Right. Right. So this is why this stuff is important because it does directly change how you preach, right? It yeah. changes how you preach. So if you listen to all three of us and when we preach, we are absolutely going to call sinners to repent, right? Two ways I'd describe it. One is, yeah. well, about mm -hmm. what? 
about God, Who about yourself, you know, about what he says about you and in his law, what you need, what Jesus has provided and accomplished for you, right? All like you're agreeing with God on all those things. And whereas you used to not agree with God's testimony, you now agree with God's testimony on all of it and you're trusting Christ. Another way we would talk about repentance has already been alluded to is a turning. Mm -hmm. And the emphasis there, Ken, you said it this way. It's a turning to Christ in faith, right? Which necessarily along with that incorporates and entails a turning from myself, a turning from my own works and a turning from my sin Mm -hmm. to Christ. And so even there, like when the three of us are preaching and we are calling all of us week over week over week to, to turn from ourselves and look away from ourselves and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a call to faith and repentance. And those, those things go together in that regard. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, that was, we'll call it an SR episode. And uh, Ken, thanks again, brother. I know that everybody is going to really enjoy the the contributions that you've made today and in the, the previous recording that we had with you. And if, uh, if time allows, Ken is an incredibly generous man and he has said that he might hang around and talk some more with us. So you might get yet another episode, a third episode from Ken and the, the three of us for the triune God we serve. Amen. Okay. All right. So um, All right. let me take a look here. We're grateful for you guys, uh, our members and our listeners uh, who support us and encourage us in ways that you might not even understand. That's right. And we'll talk with you guys again next week. Peace. Peace. Peace.